Yay! Welcome to the Back Pocket Life Stories podcast with Joe and Julia. I am a historian. I started to, to get interested in history and oral history because I used to sit in my grandfather's living room and he used to tell me every time I visited him about his life experiences during the wartime in Germany during World War II. And those stories, nobody else wanted to listen to them. Everybody from the family said, stop with the war stories. Nobody, people wanted to move on. But somehow I, as a little kid already, I was intrigued by these stories because they sounded so miraculous at points and so unbelievable how he survived and how he experienced supernatural visions during the war and how he felt that God saved him, that when I grew older, I wanted to kind of verify if those things were true, because I myself couldn't believe all these things that he shared with me. And I went off to university and I studied history, and I studied history of the 20th, 21st century, and specialized in war history, because I really dug deep to see if what my grandfather told me were just fantasies or if it was the truth. And um, till today I'm doing oral history projects because I feel like the stories that people tell us are the only way to get to know them and who they really are. So one of the most fascinating stories that my um, grandfather told me was one that made me wonder for years about my great-grandfather. My grandparents lived close to the mountain and had built a deep well in their garden that received fresh water from the spring in the mountain. And the water came down through a pipe that led into this big concrete bassin. And the water was always super cool, even during the hottest summers. And my grandparents, they used it to cool beer and other drinks in it when it was very hot outside. My grandfather then once told me that his father was a very unique person. In the little village where they lived close to the Dutch border, all the way in the west of Germany, he was called Der Schwarze Meier, the Black Meier. One reason for that was that he was very dark and people said he looked like a gypsy. And secondly, because people feared him because they thought he was performing some sort of ancient magic. So the story that relates to this fear was that my great-grandfather had two crows that he used to come to him when he was in the garden and they would fly onto the rim of the well and he supposedly taught them how to speak the human language. And as you can imagine, crows are very big birds and very impressive. And my father actually remembered that his grandfather had that nickname, Der Schwarze Meier, and he also knew the secret why the crows kept coming to him, because my great-grandfather gave them schnapps, and he got them addicted to alcohol, so they would always come back for another schnapps. His stories used to be more colorful as he was younger, but the fewer people wanted to listen, the fewer details he threw in, and the shorter his stories became. So he used to, my grandmother said that he used to always say that he's Jewish and he used to always say that um, 
that his family was Jewish and that it's so special to survive at the end in his stories the, what I got from it was only the last detail that we all have to have to be thankful that we survived so he shortened his stories as his audience shrunk the story shrunk if that makes sense and he kind of cut out the parts that people didn't want to hear The real breakthrough for us in the storytelling experience with each other came when I went to Jerusalem when I was 19 the first time. And I came back and I visited my grandfather first of all because I knew that we had that connection. And he was the only one who would want to talk about that part of our family history. And I went to him with my brother and my father and we sat in the living room as always in the quiet and I said grandpa I can't believe that the first time in my life I felt at home and he started crying and he said of course you feel that way we're Jewish and then my father started crying because he's never seen his father cry and my brother said oh can I wear a kippah now <laughs> so it was kind of like a very emotional but funny moment at the same time my brother is um, 12 years younger than me so He was a very little kid and it was a very special moment, but that was kind of the breakthrough. And afterwards, my I said to my grandfather, please tell me more. Please tell me the whole picture because I it was kind of like a puzzle to me and I couldn't figure out how the pieces came together. As a child, I didn't know I was Jewish because if nobody says it and you don't live in a Jewish community, you don't have a synagogue close by or any any infrastructure that is Jewish in any way, you don't know what and you don't as a child you don't realize differences between people in that sense like religious differences and nobody would ever express it as clearly to be jewish because people were scared the people who survived wouldn't be open about it and wouldn't identify anymore we always lived according to other people's feelings to never step on anybody's foot so to say When I was supposed to, when I was doing something on Sunday, like putting the laundry out, my mom would come out yelling, you know, the Christians, they don't, Christians don't do that on Sunday. They get upset and you never wanted to upset anybody. And that was the kind of attitude that was always underlaying every action. And I was like my grandfather, I was very rebellious. And I think that's how we connected. I would get dreadlocks just to stand out, just to do, you know, what my parents were scared of. And of course, they hated it. <laughs> so I was always that child that did exactly the opposite of what other people wanted. And that was my biggest connection with my grandfather.
Joe, I really don't know much about you, to be very honest, and you don't know much about me. But when a friend of mine told me about you, I said, who is this Joe? And she told me, well, you know, I would probably need a whole pamphlet to explain what this guy did in his life because he is an architect, he's a photographer, he writes for a Philadelphia magazine, and now he went into filmmaking. After filmmaking, he apparently got bored and decided to start a podcast and he would like to do that with you. And I honestly thought, oh my gosh, this guy is so creative. And then I was thinking about how all these things relate. And I thought, well, he's really into storytelling in all these different fields. If it's either in movies or through pictures that he takes that tell a story or through the arts and architecture. All these things, they're kind of like a musician who can play more than one instrument. That's all I can pair to. And I did spend time over in Italy carving at an Italian stone carving studio. That was after I finished my undergraduate schooling. I, it's all interrelated. That's the best way I can describe it. Are you getting bored easily or are all these things related? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm never bored, but I am restless and curious, and those things do drive what I do. But I never contradict what someone might think. They label it as boredom, is that none of these things drop away. You know, the vocabulary of each of them interrelates, like structure and form and rhythm and composition. That applies to every one of those disciplines that you mentioned. And I think it strengthens what I do. So I haven't walked away from any of those things. I consider them part of my travel case wherever I go. And uh, I'm particularly focused on the storytelling aspect of film, but it never occurred to me until you mentioned it that storytelling is actually a common thread through all of those disciplines. For instance, in architecture, they talk about scenario and narratives and that kind of thing, which you would apply more immediately to filmmaking. But it definitely applies to architecture, how people travel within a building from one space to another. They talk about that in terms of storytelling. But I never put it together until you mentioned it. And does your little travel case contain artifacts from different countries? Artifacts from different countries? Not physical artifacts, although I have collected things along the way. I once visited the uh, studio of Henry Moore, the sculptor in England, and he made a point of collecting the natural flint that lay around his place. And I found some like that, which These stones looked like sculptures in themselves, and when I saw them, I saw the inspiration that he had for his own work. So if I carried too many of those around in my travel case, it would be very heavy. But obviously, culturally, though, I collect things along the way, meaning things that I've seen in Italy or France or Greece become part of your glossary or your visual language. So you've lived in Italy for how long? I lived there for about a year. I was carving marble stone at a carving studio and i also spent time in florence where i was teaching photography at an american university france i was there much shorter time passing through but italy i consider almost like a home away from home it's so inspiring artistically and, and the arts seem so well integrated into their culture that it really felt like home Do you have a picture that tells the most fascinating story or a story that you keep remembering? 
Well, I do have a picture of a priest in the Notre Dame Cathedral, which I consider a powerful black and white image. He was just off by himself to the side reading his Bible under a little lamp and just absorbed in his studies while I'm sure thousands of tourists were milling around just beyond where he was sitting. And it's become more poignant over the years because of the tragedy at Notre Dame, the Great Fire. And I feel privileged to have seen that church when it was fully intact and just observing this small human moment off to the side. That's become even more special over the years. Yeah, especially after that destruction. It's not just a story, it's a treasure in your archive. I feel that way, yes. It's the kind of image that's readily understandable. You don't have to be of a certain culture to understand what's going on. I think the act of reading is universal. Yeah. You once told me that you feel like stories can provide both a refuge and comfort as well as a path forward. Why do you think that is? I think that's the function of stories in general. They enable each generation to understand how to make their way in the world. You know, stories contain values that are transmitted from one generation to another, and stories can be humorous, they can be sad, they cover the gamut of human emotions. So in that sense, they're a comfort and allow people to accept their own humanity, you know, the fact that they might make mistakes or they might crack a joke, or it enables each generation to learn how to tell stories, I think. And in that sense, it's a path forward, or you might learn a lesson from a particular story and be surprised at how it informs a decision you might make in your life. What brought you to Philadelphia? Work, architectural work, and though I did have some family and some friends here, I had never been to Philadelphia before. It's not a place I came as a young student, or even though, you know, the cracked Liberty Bell is here and we've heard all about that, but I'd never come to Philadelphia. And in that sense, it's surprising I'm here, but Philadelphia is rich with stories and history. I love the fact that you can walk to Independence Hall and see a place just outside where Abe Lincoln gave a speech. It's just late with history and the more time you spend here the more discoveries you make do you have a particular story of Philadelphia in your back pocket one summer I was sitting by a fountain and all kinds of you know people around and I left and when I got home I said oh my god I lost my wallet I don't have my wallet and I started grumbling about Oh, someone must have pickpocketed me, or I didn't blame it on myself, of course, but I thought for sure someone stole it. And most likely, somehow, it fell out of my pocket. I didn't recall being in a store or purchasing anything or nothing. I couldn't put back together again what might have happened. I just didn't have my wallet all of a sudden. And, of course, I was despairing, as anyone would be. Your driver's license, everything, credit cards, everything's in there. And... I don't know whether it was days or weeks later, probably just days. This young father and his kids, I don't know if his wife was with him at the time, sought me out. He looked in the wallet, found my address, and sought me out and handed me the wallet. With, you know, nothing was missing from it. But I was so taken aback and so touched that they would bother. And it was a young black family. Not that that really mattered, but it just gave me a a realization that there are good people and you shouldn't jump to conclusions. And I don't think it mattered that he was black in that sense because when I lost my wallet, I would have blamed anyone. But it is a city that's 
predominantly black, and it's something that you notice when you leave Philadelphia. So it was a connection for me to people that I otherwise would not have known. That's a very nice experience. Philadelphia is really the one thing that we have in common, right? True. One thing that really shocked me about Philadelphia was the first time we took the train from the suburbs into Center City. We drove past Elkins Park, past Fern Rock, and it didn't even take five minutes and my son looked out of the window and he started crying. And we said, why are you crying? He said, look at how poor these people are. He just saw all the damaged and destroyed houses and people live there. And it was so hard for him to see such a level of poverty that he was crying. And he had a very hard time accepting the fact that we live in such a nice neighborhood and five minutes from us, there's this really depressing, poor life. And that's one thing that I found very shocking in Philadelphia. You cross one street and you're in a totally different world. You're in a totally different neighborhood. And the differences between people's wealth and education can be so crass. And the other thing that I love about Philadelphia was that I've never seen so many friendly people. It is, after all, the city of brotherly love, right? A lot depends on what you bring to it. If you are facing people and you're braced for trouble or attitude, that's probably what you'll get back. But if you're more open to kindness and are kind yourself, then you might get that instead. So maybe that's what the brotherly love comes from, because on the surface, it may not seem that way. You know, it's not the laid-back California atmosphere, but the kindness is in 